when we were looking to give a million bucks away to the folks in the Bronx, like I was like, we have to make it so every dime goes to a human. Like I, I do not want to be like, again, not mad at nonprofits, like run one, but we got to like find a thousand people and give them a thousand bucks. Um, and we did it. And I was very, very proud of that. <laughs> we need more like that where, where we just got to get yes. money into people's hands. And remember the Congress, this is the only silver lining, Karen. We're in a deep, dark hole. It's a terrible, catastrophic time. But there's a huge appetite to do something differently. Again, 74% of Americans want cash relief. Like we're going to get President Biden and then we're going to need a new New Deal. And it's going to be hopefully a chance to right some of the wrongs that have been weighing our country down for generations. Welcome back to Yang Speaks. This week, I sit down with Karen Hunter, whose radio show I visited when I was running for president. Really enjoyed this conversation. Hope you do too. We got Andrew Yang about to come in to talk with us. Maybe he'll be mayor of New York one day. I don't know. But he's here today to talk about basic income and a host of other things that he's working on. Let me welcome back to the show our pal, Mr. Andrew Yang. Hello, Karen. Thank you for having me. Uh, It's great to be here again. I feel like I'm coming home. Hey, you know what? Um, that just gave me chills and made me feel really good uh, inside. Thank you for that. You are home, sir. You are. Um, I've had your mind. You you've been on my mind uh, since uh, well since the last time you were on. But the the eleven mayors throughout the country who signed this letter about basic income, and then we're seeing another stimulus possibly come down the pike. And I was like, if they had just done the basic income thing that Andrew Yang was running on maybe this wouldn't be such a horrific time to to be here in this country. You're 100% right, Karen, where unfortunately now we're in like this pandemic-fueled recession that could become a depression, and we need to get money into people's hands. So I've been doing my best to both make that case to members of Congress. There's an emergency cash relief bill that literally 74% of Americans support just getting money into our hands. Uh, can you think of something else 74% of Americans support at this point? (laughs) Like, what what do you have to do to try and get that higher? Uh, Majority of Republicans and Democrats. So let's talk some sense into our legislators and get economic relief into our hands. I wish it didn't have to be like in this uh, tragic and devastating a time, but it's overdue. Well, Jack Dorsey, uh, the CEO of Twitter, just announced that he's uh, donating $3 million to those mayors. Uh, I think the, the mayor in California, Stockton, has been doing it successfully. So he was one of the, the leading ones. Chakwe Lumumba, Keisha Lance Bottoms. There's a bunch of mayors all over Ross the country. Baraka, yeah, a bunch of uh, yes. people. Um, I was on a panel with Mayor Tubbs of Stockton uh, last year. And he said something to me, I probably probably not supposed to share, but I'll share it because, you know, whatever we're here. Um, But he said to me after the panel, he said, like, Andrew, you can say shit. I could never get away with saying. (laughs) Okay. And and what he meant by that was that, like, I was just up there being like, look, we have to value people intrinsically. We have to get give everyone a basic income and the rest of it. And last year he was like, if a young black mayor were to say that, like, people would be like, 
what the heck are you, you talking about? He's like, but now it's not just him. It's Keisha Lance Bottoms. It's Ross Baraka and Newark. Uh, it's mayors around the country. And there are going to be many more because if you're a mayor and you see what's happening in your community, you're going to say like, wait a minute, like we need to do things differently. So so tell me what the disconnect is. And, and I've watched it around welfare. I've watched it. There's like this notion in this country that if we give somebody something that somehow it takes something away from me. And so it, it is a weird thing, but I literally watched the government print money, trillions of dollars and give it to people and no one had a problem with it. And I'm like, Oh, so we could just print money and just give it to people. We could have been doing it the whole time, Karen. Like that's the brutal truth. And Martin Luther King saw this in the sixties. He was like, we should have a basic income today. And he was killed while he was making that case. And somehow we've been brainwashed into this nonsense myth that like, oh, we don't have enough to go around. It's been nonsense for a long time. And this pandemic has demonstrated to all of us when push came to shove, like you just said, did we just print $4 trillion for Wall Street when they needed a bailout? Yes. Did we just print $4 trillion for big companies and to some extent ourselves like during this pandemic? Yes, we can do it. We just need enough members of Congress to get on board with the fact that they work for us. They don't work for Amazon. They don't work for the, the giant companies that have been laughing their way all the way to the bank for the last number of years and decades. When, when you were talking about universal basic um, income and, you know, during the election cycle, et cetera, um, I was always wondering like, where are there other places that have actually made it work? And you've given a couple of examples, like, even I, I saw recently that you had tweeted about South Africa is on its, it's on its way to, to creating a floor for universal income, right? Talk about where the rest of the world is on this, because I think it's such a foreign concept to, to so, many, uh, so many Americans that they think it's not possible, right? But there are precedents for this, like literally in, in places throughout the world. Yeah, South Africa just announced that they're going to make it happen for everyone. Uh, India is actually implementing a version of it uh, to tens, hundreds of millions of people. Canada, they did like a full-on UBI trial in an entire town for years. And in that town, you saw better health, mental health, more people starting businesses, more people going back to school. It was beautiful. And when they found that data, they were like, this is this is exactly what we should have been doing this entire time. Like the data is like Indiana Jones, you know, like Raiders of the Lost Ark, where like the, the data was like in some freaking <laughs> like warehouse or file cabinet where pe people were trying to keep it from public eye. But then when they found it, they were like, oh, my gosh. Like, so there, like you said, there are examples of this happening around the world. And the, the most compelling example, I think tens of millions of Americans just experiences like everyone got twelve hundred bucks. And everyone liked it, loved it. Like it, it didn't make anyone all of a sudden being like, oh, like work is for like losers or something. <laughs> like, yeah. Everyone just used the, the money. And the didn't shut down because you gave its citizens their money back, right? Like government didn't stop because we gave citizens some of their money back. Yeah, it's, it's actually just money. the opposite. Right. Yeah. And it helped the economy greatly. It, it like reduced the poverty rate, but it also went back right into local businesses, to groceries, to fuel, to rent. Uh, and we are the citizens and the, the stakeholders of the richest society in the history of the world.
like $22 trillion pre-crisis, we could 100% afford this. Dr. King knew it in the 60s. He was like, we can afford this now. He's, he was right then. It's even more true today than it was then. It's just so baffling that there's so much resistance and it's always around this notion of laziness, this myth of laziness that will somehow, you know, lull people into not getting up and, and pulling themselves, themselves up by their bootstrap. We're talking with two Andrews, Andrew McCaskill, of course, and Andrew Yang. You also are out talking about police reform and cash relief. Talk a little bit about what what it is you're proposing, Andrew Yang. On the police reform side of things, I looked at the data because I'm a data guy, Karen, uh, and the data is shocking where you're seeing cities around the country pay out over a billion dollars a year in civil suits for police misconduct and brutality. Uh, and the legal standard to successfully sue a police officer is very high. So if you're seeing successful suits at over a billion dollars a year, you know that the magnitude of the problem is multiple billions of dollars. And this is literally bankrupting some towns where some cop does something reprehensible and then the entire police department gets... Now, at this, this point, you have to look at it and say, this is a rampant problem and is like many of the problems we're talking about has been in place for years. And when I talked to a Black Lives Matter activist about this, he actually hit the nail on the head. He said, look, local DAs cannot control cops in their area because if you're the DA in that area, you literally rely upon law enforcement every day just to do your job and make cases. And then for you to turn around and being like, hey, bad cops, like we're going to bust you all. <laughs> like the, the local DAs, like and Kamala Harris said the same thing. She was like, you can't expect the locals to do this. So what I proposed... Uh, was that you need a federal Department of Justice commission that ideally be named after George Floyd, that all their uh, mission was, was to investigate issues around police misconduct. And if you're a local DA, you would celebrate because finally it would be something that's off your plate. And you know that there are issues, you know there are bad cops in your area, but you can't do much about it. And then you can just say, look, like give it to the feds and then the feds come in. Like it's the only way that you'd actually be able to address this issue, in my opinion, uh, around the country in a real way that would actually stand up over time. Unfortunately, the feds right now uh, is a Trump administration fed. And so there's no appetite there to actually do this with this current administration. We've never had a Department of Justice this disinterested in justice. Yeah, they might want to rename them themselves or <laughs> you go with like a new, new one that actually uh, gets after the people's work. Uh, there are a lot of other things that, that we should do. I mean, a lot of the things in the Democrats bill were spot on around banning chokeholds and getting data. Like one, one problem is that if you have a bad cop, that cop can just go three counties over and all of a sudden get hired again. Uh, and um, you know, you it's a situation where you actually aren't even sure the magnitude of the problem. It's one reason I went looking for the data, because police departments don't actually report how many people die in contact with police officers every year, even though they're legally required to do so, which, you know, it's a terrible problem if like no one even knows how bad the problem is like, like that. That's a terrible, terrible sign in just about any any environment. So there is also, there's so much work to do on this side, Karen. Certainly, I think cash relief is part of this, too. And I said that, would George Floyd have been there 
um, in that situation, if everyone was getting one or $2,000 a month, you know, I think that there was some issue around like, you know, him needing to pay for something and like people suspected the currency, et cetera, et cetera. Like, let's just get real money in everyone's hands and then make it so that fewer people of color are having run-ins with, with a police for, for like, you know, like everyday interactions or issues. As you sit home now and watch uh, as we trip into November, you're no longer running. I, you endorse Joe Biden, but I don't think it's a cakewalk. I don't think it's going to be a runaway. I think it's going to be a very difficult victory. And I actually am nervous about whether or not he could pull this out. Have you been having conversations with him about the, the person he selects as vice president, which I think is going to be probably the most important vice presidential pick in our history? What's going to be your role in a Biden administration? Because there should be one. And and give us something to hold on to, Andrew Yang, in terms of what you see happening in November regarding this election. I talked to Joe last week, uh, and I'm really very, very positive on his chances of becoming our next president. And again, I'm the numbers guy where, you know, the polls let us down in 2016, but the polls are pretty freaking uniform this time around. And they're even more extreme than they were last time. I think Hillary had a point in like the at like a maybe a four point lead, like Joe's lead is something like twice that. And it, the lead holds up in places like Florida and Michigan, like according to the polls, Texas is up for grabs. Uh, you know, uh, you, you got to look up and say, like, if you're the average American who voted for Donald Trump, are you eager to sign up for four more years of this? You know, you like you're seeing your economy shot to pieces, you're seeing people dying, you're seeing him just like in, in flame. Uh, racial problems instead of trying to to heal them like the even the average Trump voter has to look around and being like this is not good like 72 percent of Americans said that this is the worst time in American history that they can ever ever remember uh, so that's 72 percent you know what I mean I don't know what the other 28 percent of people are maybe they're really old and they remember or something, something. <laughs> like, like, like very 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 awful uh, but if 72% of Americans think you're in the worst time in American history in their lifetimes, that's not like, let's reelect like the current president. Like that, that's a very, very anti-incumbent uh, type atmosphere. So I think Joe wins, uh, you know, but then after Joe wins, the work begins. We have so much work to do. We have to reinvent this economy so that it works for everyone listening to this, for families and towns that are being shattered right now. And I will... Uh, be part of the administration if Joe wants me to be. Um, one of the things that they have floated by me is to try and address our data rights and uh, technology issues, uh, things that the government, frankly, is way behind on. Uh, and Joe has expressed some openness and enthusiasm for trying to build up some kind of tech-facing team, uh, and I may be part of that team. As it, as it relates to that, when I think about how far advanced other parts of the world are in terms of protecting privacy, individual, the privacy of individuals, particularly as it relates to our privacy from our tech providers, put it, put it into perspective what we, what we sort of are giving away without any modicum of regulation here or without legislators who really understand technology. Yeah, we're giving away in dollar terms hundreds of billions of dollars a year. Like if you look at Facebook and Google, Facebook's revenue is seventy billion a year. Google's one hundred sixty billion a year. Uh, that's almost a hundred percent advertising, and so they're making all that money 
based on selling and reselling our data to advertisers. And we all have had the experience where you leave Facebook and the ads follow you around. You know, you have some kind of Facebook conversation about a beach vacation and all of a sudden like Aruba ads are being shown to you like when you're on a totally different site. <laughs> so, so that's uh, so so that's eerie and spooky. And number one is like, we're not seeing a dime of that. If our data is worth 200 billion a year plus, like why are we not seeing a red cent? So that's messed up. Uh, the fact that our preferences and opinions are subject to so much of this um, interference, some of it which may be corrupt or even foreign or uh, ideologically extreme, like that's a mess. Uh, the fact that our mental health is actually diminishing, particularly for young people, particularly for young girls, in part because of the way that social media incentives are set up, where, and I use social media a lot, you know, Yang Yang and, and all of that, but uh, the, the fact is that if you're the social media company, you get paid based upon trying to advertise to us. And so everything you do is going to be designed to try and maximize engagement and snap streaks and the rest of it. And so if you're a 14 year old girl and uh, you know, you're, you're getting uh, cyber bullied or whatnot, or, or being subject to various negative influences, like there's no counterweight within that tech company, uh, to try and look out for our kids. It's all about who, what the advertisers want, like how they can make the most money. So it's bad for our, our uh, sense of self, our humanity, our pocketbooks and wallets, our democracy and our mental health, what's going on right now with our data. And I would love to turn that around. I'm working on things right now to try and turn that around, but I think the Biden administration is going to move light years faster. This podcast is sponsored by Helix Sleep. I've always been a mattress guy because I figured if I'm going to do something for up to eight hours, maybe I should do it right. And Helix Sleep lets you do it right by sending you one of 20 unique mattresses that's tailored for you. I took the Helix Sleep quiz, takes only a couple minutes, and I was matched with a Helix Dawn mattress because I wanted something that felt firm and I sleep on my back. That mattress is exactly what I needed, but strangely enough, my kids now seek out that mattress in the house and want to sleep on it even though I did not order it with them in mind. If you have a high quality mattress, it is a game changer, a huge difference maker. Don't take my word for it. Helix has been awarded the number one mattress picked by GQ and Wired Magazine. It is even recommended by multiple leading chiropractors and doctors of sleep medicine as a go-to solution for improving your sleep. Helix is offering up to 30% off all mattress orders and two free pillows for our listeners. Go to helixsleep.com yang. That's helixsleep.com yang. This is their best offer yet and it won't last long. With Helix, better sleep starts now. As I'm, I'm listening to you uh, again, I'm lamenting, man, you know, it, it would be nice. And if you live in New York, uh, as we, you know, Drew does from time to time, I'm wondering if you are going to throw your hat. Are you going to announce on this show today? that you're going to be running for mayor of New York? I'm just curious. I I love the question just, just in that, like it's, it's incredibly invigorating to be considered for it. 
Um, right now, I'm focused on helping Joe win, get Trump out, like get get a new team in to DC, and then we'll look at uh, the opportunities uh, for air for you know for me in terms of how to have a positive impact. But I love New York. Uh, I certainly want to see New York back on its feet as soon as possible. And and on that, you're a father. You you're raising kids in New York. Uh, there's this drumbeat from the president to send kids back into the classroom, uh, or else, or else funding will be withheld. What are your thoughts on that as somebody that also has children in the New York City school system? Yeah, I have a co- I have conversations with my wife about this on the regular as you know, we are all having within our households. And there is real truth to the fact that like th- there are you know, a million different situations are around the country and there are real harms to not having your kids in school. Like, you know, like we we all saw the beginnings of it with our kids being out in the spring uh and if you have that uh, at-home time compound in the fall, like some of these kids will be significantly behind uh, and their development will, will be, you know, less than what you want it to be. Now, that's one side of the equation. What is the other side? Like how safe do people feel? Like if you send your kids into school, like are are you confident really that you know in my case like seven year olds are going to social distance from each other of course not they're kids like you know like the the odds of them all like wearing masks and staying like six feet away from each other are approximately zero so so you have to to look at that at the other side and say okay like you know what are the health concerns now where are the teachers on this and i, I you know you you know teachers are going to be obviously mixing with these kids on the um like uh, um on the regular um, and so that there are real massive issues to balance. It's not like a black or white or like, you know, right or wrong thing in my mind, because there are so many different situations for different kids, different families, different communities. If you're in a part of the country where, frankly, COVID is not rampant and like, you know, your kids need school, then like ideally your school does reopen and your kids back in that school. If you're in a community where COVID is spreading like wildfire and hospitals don't have capacity, then it's a very, very different picture. I'm happy to say it seems like New York now is edging towards like uh, being one of the the clearer environments because we've taken it seriously because we had to pay such a tragic, devastating price early on. Yeah, but it also, uh, there's no cure yet. <laughs> and so uh, you can be clear today and not tomorrow, 14 days later, uh, there could be another wave. So I, I just, and on that, you know, th- this president, um, took, uh, took the opportunity to constantly refer to this virus as the China virus or the Wuhan flu and things like that. And as a man from the, the with an Asian background, what were your thoughts and what was he trying to do? And what was the impact of the fallout from that? You know, I was talking to a family member about this. Like Trump's like a basketball player who has like one move. And then like if you take the move away, he doesn't know what else to do. He just keeps going to it. So in his case, it's like my move is racially inflammatory and divisive rhetoric. And if I'm getting called to task for the fact that I've let this pandemic uh, run rampant and wreck the economy and kill tens of thousands of Americans. Maybe if I call it the China virus or Kung flu or like Wuhan flu or whatever, like I can like change the conversation and just like make it so that people are angry at each other or distracted. Uh, so from my perspective it was like, look, let's just like focus on the real issues that we all care about, which is our health, our family's health, whether our kids are going to go back to school and like keep the focus on uh, the fact that this administration has failed us in historic mammoth fashion, 
Uh, so clearly, as an Asian American, obviously, I, I think that, that that kind of stuff is uh, nonsense and, and hateful and divisive. Um, but I just don't want it to work. Like, you know, just to, like keep the focus on the president's performance and, and then we'll get him out of there and then we can start to heal the country and do the hard work of digging ourselves out. It would be nice to ignore it, but there were people that were actually, you know, uh, abused, uh, attacked oh, yeah. as a result of this. So, yeah. you know, I have so, friends yeah. too. I mean, like the hatred uh, and fear and hostility towards Asian Americans has surged to a level that, you know, friends and family have never seen before. And like, you know, kids being stabbed and like people being beaten, like an acid being thrown in someone's face randomly, like, you know, just real, real uh, venom and hatred that has no place in America. Um, yeah, it, 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 it's heartbreaking, you know, and like the different, but the, the thing I try and put back in perspective, it's like, well, I mean, you also have African-Americans dying of COVID at like three, four or five times the rate of, of other Americans. I mean, like we're all suffering in different ways. Um, and, you know, like to, to me, like the goal has to be try and do as much good as possible and get us out and, and not let certainly President Trump distract us from what's most important. So now what? <laughs> you know, I wait till November. I just feel on some level, not helpless because, you know, as long as we have breath in our body, we can make a difference, whether we're talking about our community and our, in our own backyard. But it does feel like we're, we're, it's a waiting game to November to see what happens because as long as that man is in office, pardoning folks, guilty, abusing the power, um, that, that he has been, uh, imbued with. And it's disgusting, you know, as a student of history to watch this man abuse that office in this manner, you know, um, uh, I just feel like we're, we're in a holding pattern until November. Oh, Karen, there's so much for us to do between now and then, uh, certainly number one, um, uh, is some of these local races like I was excited for Jamal Bowman. I'm excited for uh, some of the folks that my organization's endorsing right now. We got a primary tomorrow on Tuesday in Austin, Texas. Uh, this great candidate, Donna Imam, uh, is running that I endorse. So like literally like every week, there's like another race that I'm like trying to pump uh, energy and resources and votes towards. Uh, yeah, like the uh, there's another candidate who just came out as a mayor for universal basic income, Alex Morse in um uh massachusetts who's great freaking brilliant guys for your basic income um so if we can get some folks into dc one of the things so we started this conversation on emergency cash relief which i'm clearly uh 100 behind and to me how can you be a member of congress who's a democrat and not be for cash relief you know like like you're you need to go and we need to get someone in there who will actually say like look during a pandemic giving money to people is obvious so right now, 41 uh, representatives and like a smaller number of members of Congress, including Kamala Harris and uh, Bernie and Ed Markey, support the cash relief bill. And one of the ways we can get cash relief passed is by having members of Congress who are not for cash relief have challengers come up, and say, I'm for cash relief. Why the heck are you not for cash relief? And then you either get the current member out and a new person in who's for cash relief, or you put pressure on the current person to, to switch. Um, and so that to me is like job one right now is we got to call our members of Congress and say, look, you're going to pass another stimulus bill, which they will. 
I guarantee another stimulus bill is coming. You got to get more of it yeah. for the people, for us, for the humans. We do not care about the megacorps. They can go into bankruptcy for all we care. Like I care about myself, my aunt, my friends, my neighbors. Get us the money. And so we need to make that case. And one great way to make that case is by like supporting people who are for it. And if you're not for it, you need to go. <laughs> so, so that's immediate. Um, another thing that we can do is, is uh, just lend a hand. Like thanks to some people like Jack Dorsey, like my organization's given uh, almost $7 million in direct economic relief, including a million dollars straight to a thousand families in the Bronx uh, earlier um, in the spring. I can't believe it's summer now. That's crazy. Uh, so, so, uh, so we need to just lend a hand because there's so much suffering, so many people, and we can't wait until uh, DC gets its act together. Like we just got to do everything we can to put people on a better path. When we've been giving this $250 or 500 or $1,000 to people, Karen, tears of joy. You know, it's like, it's incredibly invigorating and saddening at the same time that there's so many Americans that if you gave them 500 bucks, it would be like the difference between eating and not eating or being able to feed their kids and not feed their kids. So anything we can do to help on that side, we should do. Uh, and for what it's worth, Andrew Yang is very positive. Tell people how to participate in that. Oh, I would love that. Uh, so our organization's website is movehumanityforward.com. Uh, we've given $7 million in direct economic relief. Any money you give to us, we're going to turn around and give to someone in need. Uh, and yeah, hopefully we can get, get up to that $10 million level pretty quick. Um, but the need is so vast. You can also request help at that website. Uh, so if when you're listening to this and you need a hand, you can put your name down. It's pretty quick. Um, we do have a massive waiting list now, um, so no promises. But if you need help, please do just put your name down. And if you can provide help, uh, give what you can and we'll turn it around and give it to someone else. I'm curious what you think about some of the large corporations that are now starting to to pledge dollars to to communities, particularly I'm thinking about the dollars pledged to the African-American community or racial uh, or social justice or even some of the organizations, some of the corporations that are pledging dollars for COVID, um, their COVID response. What what would you advise those organizations, those companies where to spend that money, how to actually make that money meaningful, or what should we be should be looking for, asking for from those organizations as they're saying, we're gonna give these dollars, we're gonna make these these donations and these checks. What should we be looking for or asking them to do with that money? I'm a huge fan of direct relief. Uh, you know, like if the money was going straight into people's wallets and pocketbooks, that would be ideal. I like it when firms stand up and try and do the right thing. They say like, hey, look, I'm gonna give $5 million to uh, communities of color. I've been in those offices and you know what they do when they're in this situation? They look around and say, okay, who can we give the money to that will stand up to like a very, very high degree of corporate scrutiny or press scrutiny. And then they'll try and identify various nonprofits that uh, are reputable and can be trusted and then maybe if you have five million to give to communities of color, you say, look, find me the five top nonprofits that are working on various issues. And then you give them each a million each. You have press releases. Those leaders are happy. Great. Love it. 
how much of that money ends up uh, reaching folks who are desperate right now for groceries and the rest of it? Probably not quite as much as you'd hope, you know, and, and, and not to be mad at anything that's going on. Like I've run a nonprofit that I started. You know, if you gave us a million bucks, like uh, we'd be incredibly grateful. We do great stuff with it. We'd pay our people first, obviously, because, you know, like it's not like these nonprofits um, are swimming in resources necessarily all the time. So like some good work would be done, but there'd be a lot of people that would never see a dime of that. Um, and so it, it's a different type of challenge. But if you're a company, you feel like you, you got to go to a name brand partner. Uh, Jerome and I have been having this conversation just about every week uh, because we know what you just said is true. And we need to do more of what you're actually doing. Move, move humanity forward, movehumanityforward.com. So, Andrew, first of all, thank you for being here today. Uh, we appreciate you. We appreciate the partnership. You're a guy that really does care about people. And that's important to us here, uh, just in general, because everyone is so political. Everything's so political. Everything's about, you know, putting on the right face and ha and saying the right things and having the right sound bites. You actually do care. You th that was what you ran for president on and you're still doing it. So, uh I'm 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 really grateful that you're part of this family here. I'll thank you, Karen. I'm grateful to you for having me on back when I was running. Now, I'll come back anytime. And we just have to do what's right for us and our people. We know, like, if you talk to the average person, like, you know, they know how to solve their own problems best. We just got to get money into your hands so you can actually solve your own problems. When we were looking to give a million bucks away to the folks in the Bronx, like, I was like, we have to make it so every dime goes to a human. Like, I, I do not want to be, like, again, not mad at nonprofits, like, run one. But we got to, like, find a thousand people and give them a thousand bucks. Um, and we did it. And I was very, very proud of that. <laughs> we need more like that, where, where we just got to get yes. money into people's hands. And remember the Congress, this is the only silver lining, Karen. We're in a deep, dark hole. It's a terrible, catastrophic time. But there's a huge appetite to do something differently. Again, 74% of Americans want cash relief. Like, we're going to get President Biden, and then we're going to need a new, new deal. And it's going to be, hopefully, a chance to right some of the wrongs that have been weighing our country down for generations. Elections have consequences, people. You got to vote. You got to take care of business. And Andrew Yang, you come back anytime, sir. Appreciate you. Follow Thank him. Thank you so much. Yang, yang.